Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hi, it's Conrad. What do you have in mind? And welcome to episode 114 of Movie Oubliette, the multi-continental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, wondering who's Prime Minister this week in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) Maybe it's the head of lettuce. Uh, And me, Dan, (laughs) starting a new part-time job in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, we focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror films because we think the future of cinema involves capturing evidence of traffic stop shootings, first-person rape murders and getting your frontal lobe melted by an electric squid. Hello, Dan. (laughs) Wow, it sounds like a a happy, fun future. (laughs) Doesn't it just? (laughs) So you're starting a new part-time job. It's not Prime Minister, is it? No, no, unfortunately not. No, not for 45 days. Uh, no, it's it's just it's just uh, mail sorting. I'm gonna be working at uh, the same uh, company that my my wife works at, Australia Post. Uh, it's just ah. just to help with the bills. It's nothing extravagant or or even in my field. So <laughs> just yeah, something to help out financially. But you know, so it's only in the morning, so it's just like something I can get over and done with, and I can get get on with my day. Okay. And will you be in the same post office no. as your wife? Or? No, no, that would okay. uh, that would be a very strange dynamic. I think. Yeah, no, <laughs> different post office. <laughs> okay, well, good for you. I'm surprised it's not prime minister because I think here we're doing it like jury duty now. I think oh, yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. just anybody. I think it might be me <laughs> next week. You never know. It's uh, <laughs> strange times. Yeah, the shortest. Serving Prime Minister in history of, of the UK, 45 days. It's uh, it's not long. It's not long. No, I looked up who was the other shortest. And up until that point, it was some guy in like the 19th century who died 100 days in. Oh, um, okay. Wow. So. <laughs> okay. I do love that live stream of that person that is <laughs> said how long the lettuce would last compared to the Prime Minister and the lettuce one. The, the lettuce, lettuce is, is still Still alive, still fresh, still crisp. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so by the time this comes out, we will have a new prime minister. Well, or the old one. We could have the Muppet back again. Who knows? It's just crazy. We really want an election, but never mind. Yeah, (laughs) talking about more uplifting things. uh, Anything in our mailbag today? Well, yes, I did a bit of mail sorting myself today. (laughs) And discovered that we have quite a few comments on our Halloween video essay on YouTube. If you haven't checked that out, please do. Our Mm -hmm, mm co-production with Melinda Mock from Retroblasting is going strong. And Ozma said, Halloween 3 is the best one. It's a brilliant Ah. movie. Very smart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was vilified when it came out, but it's kind of worked its way into people's hearts over the years, mm. hasn't it, Halloween 3? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I only watched it 
for the first time fairly recently. And I, yeah, I was surprised. It, I mean, it's quite dark as well. Like, mm. it, I mean, they've got kids in there. Uh, and also that Shamrock song <laughs> is, is, you know, it's never leaving my brain ever. Um, yeah, it's a good film. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I love the soundtrack, actually. I think it's one of John Carpenter's best. Mm. Joseph said, Michael is not just evil incarnate. He's effectively death personified, something that's always there waiting. Part of the deeper meaning of the original's ending is when he disappears after being shot seven times with a six-shot revolver, is that we keep hearing his breathing. Death never dies. Part of the reason I don't like how Halloween ends, well, ended, is that they completely demystify Michael. No spoilers, but... Yeah. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that's why the zombie films don't work. There's too much backstory. We don't want to see that. I don't. I don't want to see Michael no. as some like bullied child. Uh, <laughs> just leave that out. No. Exactly. No. And you can't kill death either. Mm, but there mm. we go. Um, Joseph also said, and I would love to visit Halloween Three Island, though I would not want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. On Practical Magic, we heard from Kirk, who said, I make no qualms about my appreciation for this movie. Mm. There's a lot of love for Practical Magic out there. Mm. Uh, James said, uh, the Dust Buster was the same here in the States, totally useless except for peanut shells. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, and yet everybody wanted to buy one. It was crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only yeah. know it from Back to the Future 2, where it's in an antique store. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh, right. Yeah, when he goes in the future. Right. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It probably would be <laughs> in an antique store now. It probably would, yeah. <laughs> and finally, we heard from Serge of Cold oh. Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hello, Serge. And he says, Practical Magic is one of my favourite comfort food movies. I'm sympathetic to first-time viewers since it clearly doesn't play by the rules of the real world, but it does definitely play by its own rules, and I think it's delightful. Fun fact, the first time I watched it on DVD, there was a typo on the back of the box that said it was 180 minutes long. By the time (laughs) Angelov was exorcised an hour and a half into it, I was like, where the hell are they going to go from here? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's a long movie, jeez. It is, yeah. That's like Lord of the Rings long. That's, (laughs) wow. Yeah, yeah. Interesting love talking about the format he first saw it on. I watched Practical Magic for the pod on DVD because that that was all that I could uh, find at a Mm. reasonable price. And it was a flipper. Do you remember those DVDs? Oh, you had to turn it over. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't think I ever had one of those. Maybe I did. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah, I had a couple of them. Usually rom-coms. I don't know why. For some reason, they used to give those short shrift when it came to manufacturing. But yeah, oh. it was a flipper. I had to flip the disco wow. halfway through. Wow. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you everyone for getting in touch. We always love hearing from you. Yes, yes, we do. So, Conrad, uh, what are we going to be discussing today? Anything on, on some outdated... <laughs> Media? (laughs) I don't know. Let me just uh, roll a skate over in a bikini bottom and find out. (laughs) 
Oh, my goodness, it's loud in here. Oh, wow, some sort of party. There are thousands and thousands of people. I feel very unsafe. Let me put a mask on. A lot of confetti. Hang on. I think I've found the movie. It looks like it's on a mini disc. I think I remember those. Do we have a player? <laughs> I'm heading back. Okay. Whoa, I hate the zap when they die. Yeah, wow. That's probably the largest number of people I've been around in years. Yeah, wow. That must be year 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Conrad, what do you have for us today? So I have with me Strange Days, the 1995 American cyberpunk thriller film directed by Catherine Bigelow, written by her ex-husband James Cameron and Jay Cox and produced by Cameron and Stephen Charles Jaffe. And it stars Rafe Fiennes, Angela Bassett, Juliet Lewis, Tom Sizemore, Vincent D'Onofrio and Michael Wincott. And what happens in this? Well, meet Lenny Nero, a washed-out ex-cop who ekes out a living in the cyberpunk hellscape of LA in 1999 by selling clips of people's experiences taken directly from the cerebral cortex, courtesy of a new technology that captures all of the senses and stores them on a Sony Mm mini-disc. Hopelessly addicted to replaying clips of his life with ex-girlfriend Faith, Lenny's a bit of a loser, but he's suddenly caught in a web of political intrigue when he unwittingly comes into possession of first-person evidence of the traffic stop shooting of a prominent black rapper and political activist called Jericho One. Mm -hmm. Can his friends, Max, a fellow ex-cop, and Mace, a chauffeur-slash-kick-ass bodyguard, help Lenny do the right thing before the murderous cops kill everyone to cover their tracks? Or will he need to stop for five minutes to watch Faith perform yet another PJ Harvey song? Find out after the break. Oh, yes. Can't wait. It's my favourite decade. Yes. (laughs) And we have a guest. Yes, indeed we do. Can't wait. We are very excited to welcome back today an insightful film critic, co-host of The Horror Queers, regular columnist for Bloody Disgusting, and fan of dark beers, erotic thrillers, and internet access, Joe Lipset. Hello, sir. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Welcome back. (laughs) That's a very timely update. Yes, thank you for that. (laughs) Yes. How have you been and have you recovered from your recent trauma? Oh, man. I didn't realize (laughs) what losing the internet for five days would do to my psyche, but I more or less just completely fell apart. But yes, I'm happy to say I picked myself up and put myself back together. Five days is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I really truly do now believe that the internet is a human right because especially if you're working from home, you literally cannot live without it. Yeah. 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 So were you like hotspotting off your phone or something? Yes. And using the public library. So folks, uh, PSA, <laughs> fund and utilize your public library because they are invaluable. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
I can imagine. Well, hopefully this hasn't interrupted your flow of great content and projects. What have you been working on recently that we can look forward to? Oh, gosh. Well, here in North America, we're lucky to have Chucky back on the air on the Sci-Fi Network. So I've been doing queer editorials on each weekly episode of that for Bloody Disgusting. And then, of course, uh, Horror Queers actually just celebrated its 200th anniversary a little while back. Wow. 200th anniversary. 200 episodes there we go wow (laughs) and uh, congratulations thank you yeah it's funny because part of us took the step back and said oh well we've also produced you know hundreds of episodes for the patreon as well but we Mm. don't count those because of course they're not as publicly available Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that's true so you've been talking to trace for a very very long time (laughs) (laughs) indeed yes uh we're coming up Next year will be our fifth year on the podcast, but I imagine you two aren't too far behind. Yeah, we passed our hundredth this year, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So this one will be our 114th episode. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've got a wee way to go. Yeah, for 200. (laughs) It's not a race, right? It's all about the journey. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's scary how high the numbers get in such what feels like a short space of time. Mm -hmm. What's fun is when you hear from someone who's new to the podcast and they say, oh, I really love that conversation that you had about that thing. And you go, did we have that conversation? (laughs) Did we cover that movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've had a few of those moments. I love that. I guess in, in your case, though, you could just say, oh, yes, that conversation. I think we put that back in the oubliette, so I don't recall. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, the film that you have plucked out of the oubliette for us to discuss today hails from 1995, so the 90s, my favorite decade, <laughs> Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow, who we haven't covered on the pod before. Oh, really? And she has a number of films that are in the oubliette that weren't, you know, massive hits for her. Mm -hmm. And in her early days, she was playing around with genre a lot. Yes. Always in interesting ways. How did your experience of Strange Days begin, Joe? So that's an interesting question. I mean, you should always anticipate this when you're coming on to talk about a film, right? But I honestly can't remember quite how I came across it. I think it was my sister and I rented it likely from Blockbuster or Jumbo Video, but I didn't see it in theaters. So I would have seen it after the fact, you know, after it had already come out, flopped and then gone to video. (laughs) And I think we were just intrigued by the cover because it has quite a vibrant image of these three main actors. And it's set in the turn of the century back when Y2K was still a very big topic and we were all very terrified of it. (laughs) So I remember being very intrigued by like, what exactly is going on in this film? Because I was also big into cyberpunk at the time. Mm, right. right. How about you, Dan? Yeah, I watched this when I was in university. I studied music. I had a friend and she studied film. Mm-hmm. So she was very much into introducing me to the films I would never have seen myself. So lots of Catherine Bigelow. We watched Blue Steel. Yes. Uh, yeah. Strange Days. Yeah, films that were not in the mainstream. And I don't really remember this movie at all. I remember the technology of the playback or whatever it's called. Right. And I do remember Juliette Lewis Mm -hmm. because she's mostly naked in this movie. A lot of nudity. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But apart from that, I don't really remember it. But I was very surprised watching it again, how current it still is. Like a lot of the themes are like, wow, this, Mm -hmm. this came out last year. This would have been very, very topical. Yeah. It's incredible 
how oh, ahead of its time it was in 1995. Yeah. Although its technology <laughs> has dated somewhat. I've often joked on the pod whenever mini discs have come up <laughs> that Strange Days featured the mini disc quite heavily. And speaking of out of date formats, just to close the loop. So the way I first saw Strange Days was on <gasps> Laser Disc. <laughs> My heart. <laughs> Which I I still have. I bought a Laserdisc, a Pioneer Laserdisc in the UK in the early aughts, I think, at the point where it was sort of having its last dying breath and they mm -hmm. were trying to sell them off. Mm. And you got sort of a clutch of five discs to go with it. And Strange Days was one of them because this movie did not do well and they were clearly just trying to get rid of the stock. Right. And because it is a two hour and 20 minute movie, it's over two platters so it's, <laughs> yes. it's quite the impressive set yeah oh my gosh so laser disc is just like a giant cd right mm -hmm. yes yeah, a 12 inch so an album sized cd that's about a quarter of an inch thick it's <laughs> yes yeah when it's spinning in the machine it's pretty terrifying oh wow <laughs> But wait, did you watch this on Laserdisc for this recording? Not for this recording, no. I didn't oh. I didn't go old school. No, I did manage to catch it on a streaming service this time around. But yeah, out of date formats, but as you say, Dan, the story and the themes that are at play here seem even more relevant now than they possibly were in Y2K. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like dealing with race police brutality, mm. um, even like toxic relationships mm -hmm. with very uh, predatory or creepy guys. Yeah, I don't know. I was shocked at how topical it was. Mm. I found myself most fascinated by the idea of voyeurism, right? Like being able to have these kind of personalized experiences that you could experience in a really lifelike way. And in the world of the film, it's very much like, oh, this is such a, a forward-thinking dystopian future. Like, we would never get here. And now I think of, you know, oh, this actually anticipated even things as sorry for being crude but like point of view porn where yeah. like you can literally watch actors from their perspectives as they're engaging in sexual activity and i was like oh a huge part of this movie is literally just doing what people watch on the internet now yeah, yeah it's, it's slightly different because the technology in this movie you are actually feeling the sensations right it's not yes. purely visual it's actually completely you're feeling touch and, and heat and the actual feelings of the person that was recorded mm -hmm. so it's different we're not at that stage yet but we're very close right yeah it's scary <laughs> i mean this had been covered before in the douglas trumbull movie brainstorm from 1983 in that one as well the filmmakers quickly imagined one of the uses that it would be put to and recording sex is definitely top of the list so that people can experience it and I always remember in Brainstorm, one of the things that blew my mind as a kid watching it was an old guy that took a loop of somebody having an orgasm. He actually spliced it into a tape loop so that he could just experience it over and over and over again. Oh, gosh. Promptly had a heart attack and <laughs> ended up being hospitalized because oh, wow. <laughs> you, you can't do that. The human body is not built for that. Mm. The interesting aspect of that is you mentioned Anne Juliet Lewis is in this. She is very rarely wearing anything. Mm -hmm. We get to see her entire boob skincare regime for some reason, and you get to see lots of first-person... 
POVs of sex acts and even a rape and murder mm-hmm. of women. I remember this shocked people at the time, particularly being under the directorial hands of Catherine Bigelow and therefore not the male gaze or not what you would imagine would be the typical male gaze in mainstream Hollywood cinema. Mm. But then you wonder whether Catherine Bigelow is actually criticising the male gaze in mainstream Hollywood cinema genre filmmaking. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being, I mean, I didn't pay attention to the reviews. Like I didn't even realise that this film hadn't performed well at the box office because like I love this movie on first sight. So it's always been a huge favourite of mine. But it's been interesting being more critical of films and like sort of investigating how they were received and how people talked about them. And I don't know if it's progress, but the fact that people at the time were just so shocked and amazed that a woman could have possibly directed this because it feels like a man's film. And we're seeing these women's bodies (laughs) in such exploitative ways. And you're like... Yes, women can do this. This is not a particularly male thing. But I mean, that's a bit of rhetoric that has chased Catherine Bigelow's entire career, right? She's always been a, oh, wow, she directs such masculine or male energy films. And I think that's such an odd thing to put on someone. Yeah, Yeah. but I feel like she doesn't at the same time like Mm -hmm. the love interest in this movie is not what you would expect no like first of all she's not white Mm -hmm. the mace character played by angela bassett she's not like wafer thin she's not sort of fetishized as a black woman either it's quite different she is a very strong character she doesn't need helping out i mean kind of at the end when you have that sort of bullet save right moment where it doesn't actually happen because no bullets were flying from the gun but it's fine <laughs> so she does take care of herself she doesn't need a man to come in and save the day so like it is quite different even juliet lewis's character faith is not what you would normally expect she doesn't love Lenny at all. She's constantly trying to push him away. (laughs) It's just, yeah. Yeah, in a more conventional film, Lenny would have ended up with Faith at the end of this, and Mm. Mace would have gone on to continue being his friend or being a limo driver or something. Like To the point where I remember being really surprised when we get that kiss between Mace and Lenny, because it feels almost unexpected like the movie's less interested in exploring traditional heteronormative Mm. romance relationships right Mm. it is yeah yeah. and it comes in something that we touched on with uh, Lotta Lusten in our last episode on practical magic it's the 90s rush towards each other and smash each other's faces together kiss Yeah, it's interesting how the roles are reversed, the gender roles, because Lenny is not a fighter Mm. and he's constantly getting beaten up and left in the gutter uh, or being rescued by Mace, who, let's face it, Angela Bassett kicks ass in this movie. Oh my God. She is formidable in this role and still human. So I saw one writer say that she kind of hews too close to the Amazonian warrior trope that some black actors are sad with but she's still human i like the fact that in the finale of the movie she ends up on the floor being beaten by a whole group of cops so she is still vulnerable she's still human and she is still a mother but she's a Mm. fearsome one which 
I think it's a great combination. And yeah, she's the one that's kicking ass and Lenny is the one that's sort of scuttling around getting his ass handed to him on a regular basis until the finale. Right. He sort of turns into a superhero at the finale to rescue Juliet Lewis's character. I did have questions about the end. I was confused. Uh, the motivations yeah. for Max just did not make any sense to me. No. I, why did he kill Iris and Tick? I don't know. No No. idea. Juliet Lewis's character Faith seemed to be with him, but then at the last moment, she's not with him and then lets him fall off a building to his death. It's just, Mm -hmm. what? Like, I was really confused by that. It feels very much like at the last stage of the game, just as we were about to shoot the end of the film, somebody in a Hollywood studio, like a suit, swoops in and says, no, we're going to have to do, like, things a little bit differently because it just doesn't feel of a kin with the rest of the film, right? Like, Mm. I'm happy that we don't end up with Lenny and Faith together, but apart from that, everything else feels too pat. Yeah. yeah, and even the dialogue is awful in that bit where Max is explaining his whole plan. <laughs> Ooh, no, <laughs> who wrote this? It's really bad. Which is a shame because the rest of the movie has some really great crackling dialogue. dialogue in the rest of the movie, exceptional. So many quotable lines. I know we'll, we'll get to that in the movies, I'm sure. But the end is not good. But what I did like was that Lenny rescuing Faith and finding out who was the killer. And the high fall death of the killer was not the climax of the movie. Yeah, it, it wasn't. comes before the real climax of the movie, which is Mace getting social justice for a, a murdered black activist and rapper who was killed by cops in a traffic stop, mm-hmm. which again felt prescient to me because I mean I was aware at the time of the Rodney King beating and the riots that followed Mm. but I don't think I was aware of the phenomenon of traffic stops being so frequently fatal and disproportionately for people of colour yeah I don't think I've seen that represented in film prior to this yeah Yeah, it's interesting because I find you know if you look at films from this particular time period like the mid 90s to the early 2000s there's like a five to six year period part of the reason that I wanted to come on and talk about this film with you too is because I had just listened to your Johnny Mnemonic episode and I was like, this film feels like it's kind of in conversation because they're both cyberpunk texts, but they're both deeply concerned with technology and the end of the millennium and that kind of stuff. But there's this weird trope in films of this time, particularly in science fiction or cyberpunk, where we're doing a kind of black activist or Mm. like somebody who's a bit of a sage, right? So we see it in Johnny Mnemonic Mm -hmm. with the kind of Ice Cube character, if I'm mistaking the right actor. Ice-T, I think. I think, yeah. Ice-T. There's so many ices. (laughs) Yes, I think you're right. It is Ice-T. But we see it in things like Gamer as well. Like, we were interested in Hollywood in making movies basically that were acknowledging that racial conflict was an issue and that these people were most likely to be assassinated or executed by governmental figures who wanted them silenced. Mm. But also most of the films were disinterested in actually engaging with the politics of the time, right? Mm. So I think that's one of the other reasons I really find Strange Days to be such an interesting film because at the end of the day, the climax of this film is about a race riot. Yeah, Mm. And so close to home, like it felt like, this was just describing 2020, 2021 with all the BLM, yes. all the protests. That scene where she's getting like the shit kicked out of her with, oh. with the police yeah. was just so powerful, especially when the people in the crowd were like, 
this is not right. Let's beat the shit out of these policemen. Mm-hmm. I was just was like, wow, they're so close to home. Like that literally happened like last year, year before. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's good that the film represents it's a multicultural crowd celebrating the turn of the millennium that turn on the cops. Right. So it's not just black people left to fend for themselves. Sure. Yes. It's yes, a little yes. bit disappointing that there is a great white savior in the police commissioner. Mm-hmm. So the film has a little bit more faith in pale male and stale authority figures. <laughs> <laughs> um, than I have or than I feel they deserve. But one thing I quite liked is that Lenny Nero entrusts Mace with the evidence and doesn't take it himself. He thinks she's the one who should choose. And also when we get the playback of the killing, we see it through Mace's eyes. We don't see it through Lenny's, mm. which feels right. It doesn't feel like it's Lenny's story to tell. Yeah, I did like that scene, how powerful it was. Mm. And the fact that Mace had never done playback before and so it was mm-hmm. yeah i felt that it was done really well yeah going back to the technology of playback so they're recording people's experiences with these they're called squids squids yes. yep. super conducting quantum interference devices you have to have your recorder close by and it's recorded on these mini disc chips mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it did really remind me of like other type of movies done in that pov sort of point of view obviously slashes like you know, Halloween and Black Christmas and stuff like that. But I, I was looking up other films and Memento does it. Oh, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Being John Malkovich does it as well when he enters John Malkovich. Uh, also, more recently, uh, there's a film called Hardcore Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole movie is in POV, which Ooh. is... It's like a cartoon. It's almost impossible to watch. <laughs> yeah, it is hard watch. It's just like watching a, just a, a walkthrough of someone playing a video game pretty much. Yeah. Um, which this kind of felt like at times. Like it did feel like kind of slasher movie, but kind of like I'm watching a video game here. Mm. And it was done flawlessly well in terms of I, like there's one scene with Lenny and Faith and he's behind her mm-hmm. and you can see her shoulder in his point of view, yeah. but then he looks in the mirror and you can see he's behind her. It's like, how did they film that not to get him in the in the shot? It was incredible. Yeah. Mm. And when you start to realize, you know, oh, there's ways that we could do this nowadays because the cameras are so much smaller and they're more portable and that kind of thing. But like, this is 1995. We didn't have this kind of technology. They actually had to break new ground to make this. You know, I don't want to spoil my Moobly Award nomination, but like the opening scene where we see the men rob the store and then try to make the jump between the buildings and how they shot that uninterrupted fall down the 16 stories is just so impressive when you consider what we could do with camera technology. Like this wasn't a thing that they could just do easily Mm. and it just makes it all the more impressive yeah Yeah, because often now they just do it in post oh sure yeah you can edit our camera crew Mm -hmm. and and cords and everything now like they just do it in post but they didn't have that back then No. no she was breaking whole new ground designing a new camera for these sequences something that was i think eight pounds on a stick that was gyroscopically stabilized, but not wow. perfectly floaty so that it wasn't sort of disconnected and strange like Michael Myers' point of view shots, which we talked about recently. Mm. Right. Um, but not nauseating, light enough for somebody to run with and jump with. And it could take 35 millimeter film canisters because high definition video was very early days and very cumbersome and heavy and could not take movie lenses. And they wanted it to look as good as 
the main movie. Which it does. Yeah. Which it does, yeah. And also just the ridiculousness of coordinating it. So the left hand is always the cameraman's hand, but the right hand is a stuntman standing behind the cameraman and they have to coordinate to make it look like it's the same person and their shoulders are the right width apart. Oh, wow. And you're running up a building and waiting for a helicopter to be in the right position to flare the lens as it spots him before he jumps and a stuntman jumps with no safety cable. It's just... What? (laughs) It's a phenomenal achievement for 1995 on 35mm film. Yeah, wow. It did feel like... I've seen quite a lot of parkour videos. Yes, where yes. they just got a, like a GoPro on their on their head mm-hmm. uh, and just strapped to their head and doing all these parkour moves. Like it felt like that, but in 1995, which is yeah. way before its time. I think knowing what we know now and seeing what we've seen on things like parkour videos and YouTube videos and that kind of stuff, the thing that stands out is actually that this is too well shot. Right? Like yeah. we know it would be messier if this is what they were really doing if it was legitimately from their point of view Mm. on their heads yeah (laughs) yes Technically, it is an astonishing film. I mean, I'm trying to think of other action movies around that time, and I really do think she stood out in films like Point Break and in this, creating a style that was way ahead of its time, Mm -hmm. breaking ground with what you did with a camera and what you did in terms of live stunts. Mm. But visually, a lot of it feels familiar. I mean, Blade Runner looms. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. In the background. I was thinking of Blade Runner. Just sort of that nostalgic sentimentality as well. Mm -hmm. Like he's kind of pining over a a love that initially I thought, oh, she died, obviously. But no, she's just over there in the club um, (laughs) on stage. Uh, That's fine. Um, But yeah, it reminded me of movies like Minority Report Mm -hmm. and like Inception. And like there's a new movie, Reminiscence. Oh, yeah. Just kind of similar. I haven't seen that movie, so I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) But yeah, that very sort of nostalgic futuristic at the same time yeah i always forget how indebted to film noir this movie is as well like i saw someone describe faith as uh, a kind of pseudo femme fatale and i realized oh you know what that's actually really accurate it's just that you wouldn't think of her that way because she's not slinking around but right she's highly over sexualized she's manipulative and she's getting lenny who is more or less our inept investigator you know he's a disgraced former police detective in the film but Mm. at the end of the day it really does feel like we're adhering to those conventions and those archetypal characters right yeah yeah yeah, 100% I do feel like because there is a lot of nudity in this movie Mm -hmm. but I do feel like it is quite sex positive like no one's ever telling her I'll put a coat on or anything like she is who she is and everyone accepts it and it's fine you know like it doesn't matter it's a lot of nudity for us as an audience member but she's confident in her own body Mm -hmm. she is in love with someone who wears a terrible wig though i mean tom (laughs) sizemore as max i only know him from films like saving private ryan so i'm just used to seeing him with the close cropped hair that you eventually see once the wig comes off so i like the fact that the artificiality of the wig is part of the story because i was looking at it all the way through. yeah 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 this is they couldn't have done better 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's interesting as well, uh, Tom Sizemore was in The Relic, which was the very yes. first film that we covered with you, Joe, and Trey. That's right. Um, so it's, it's just gone full yes. circle. That's true. Yeah. This is an interesting performance from him because it feels firmly in his oeuvre of sleazeball performances, right? But in a way, this whole world is populated by sleazy, mostly men, right? Like the male characters in this movie are just not good overall no. no tom sizemore i don't really know him that well from movies but he's been in a lot of amazing big budget movies pearl harbor black hawk down natural born killers true romance heat but he for some reason now he's in a lot of asylum films oh. you know those terrible rip-off films like megalodon rising <laughs> alien conquest monster hunters nazi <laughs> overlord these, you look at the posters for these films and it's obvious what they're trying to rip off the mm-hmm. alien conquest is just independence day insurgents that came out in the same year right uh, monster hunters is just ripping off monster hunter <laughs> uh, which came out the same year nazi overlord is just ripping off overlord, overlord which came out the <laughs> oh, same no. year and exactly the same plot i don't know how that studio is not getting constantly sued but whatever <laughs> but yeah the, the, some of the other cast in this movie ralph fines Yes. I didn't know he was in this movie when I watched it. I probably didn't even know who he, who he was. You know, he the Harry Potter hadn't come out yet. So mm-hmm. the first movie I noticed him in was Red Dragon, mm. which he's like incredible in. But yeah, this was early Ralph Fiennes. Yeah. In quite a cool role. Well, he was coming off the back of Schindler's List. Yeah, yes. I know. Change of pace. Does anybody else have trouble accepting him as the leather pant wearing, fast talking huckster? I, I don't know. I, I didn't buy it at the time. I thought he was miscast. Oh. I bought it. I, I thought it worked. I don't know. It's almost like proto Liam Neeson and Taken, except he's not actually kicking ass. Right. He's- kind of fumbling around i i didn't mind it i thought it was fine yeah i mean liam neeson's always been more of a man of action anyway whereas ray finds i don't know wait do you still feel that way though i have trouble with it but because he's not a hard-boiled detective that kicks ass all the way through i can kind of live with it but ray finds in leather trousers just wasn't right (laughs) but as you say the male characters are not particularly admirable in this the only one that I kind of felt sorry for was the one that's played by the guy who was hippie in The Abyss, Todd Graff, who's missing both of his legs, isn't he? And mm. Lenny gives him a clip that he's recorded of him running along a beach so that he can experience what it's like to have legs again. Right. I thought it was a beautiful moment. Though. Mm. That is like, nice. Out of all of the playback that is shown in this film, it's all grimy sex and yes. murder, apart from that, mm. which is actually very beautiful. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Yeah, because I think without it, it would just be this kind of, oh, well, the future, because, of course, this movie is meant to be set in the future, is a terrible place filled with near duels, right? Like Mm. drug addicts, prostitutes and all these very judgmental, typical Hollywood fare. So I think we need that to suggest, oh, there can be good uses for this technology. Mm. It's just that the characters in this particular story are are not as uh, conventionally nice and rootable for. Mm. Yeah, there's that moment and also the moment that Mace loves Lenny for when you find Mm -hmm. out that she loves him is the flashback to him when he was a cop being careful to make sure that her son did not see her husband and his father being arrested. Mm. And that moment of empathy and thoughtfulness and kindness is the thing that has endeared her to him and stayed with her even while she's watched him descend into someone that she really 
really doesn't like, doesn't yeah. admire as yeah. so much anymore. So, yeah, two insights into Lenny that make him a little bit better as a character. Although the moral centre of the film is really Mace. Yes. yes. 100%. Yes. Now it's time for Random Trivia. Okay, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you download on your mini-disc today? <laughs> well, uh, did you know the actress uh, Louise Le Cavalier, who played the the white dreadlocked girl that beats the shit out of um, Lenny? Oh, yes. She is actually a Canadian contemporary dancer and appeared in David Bowie's Fame music video from 1990 and also collaborated with David oh. Bowie on his Sound and Vision tour that same year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because she is also pretty striking in terms of, like, appearance and standing out from the the rest of the characters. Definitely gave me a anticipatory vibe of where the Wachowski sisters would go yeah, in it reminded the Matrix me. Resurrection. Yes. And yes. Yeah. yeah I was thinking that. I was wondering if it was the same person, but it wasn't. Right, right, right. Another piece of trivia, yeah. I have to mention this. So uh, there is a line that Angela Bassett says, right here, right now, which I was like, that's a song. I that I, I know that's from a song. And then sure enough, I looked it up and it's, yeah, it's from Fatboy Slim's song, right here, right now, that came out in 1999 when this film is set. So yeah, I picked it oh. straight away. It's, it's, it sounds exactly the same. And yeah, Angela Bassett on uh, yeah. Fat Boy Slim. There we go. Yeah, it's unmistakable, actually, that sample. Yeah. yeah. It's funny f- hearing it in situ in the film. It is. But it sounds <laughs> like I, I recognized it immediately. I, I was no doubt. Yeah. And that's our trivia. Yes. There are almost like three villains in this movie. So you've got Max, played by Tom Sizemore, and then you've got Philo Gant, uh-huh. played by Michael Wincott, <laughs> the sleazy, atrocious, toxic boyfriend of Faith. And then you've also got Vincent D'Onofrio, mm-hmm. playing the brutal, disgusting cop. Yeah, I mean, Vincent D'Onofrio does villains very well. <laughs> yep. He seems to play these really, really great villains that you despise, but also kind of love. Like him in uh, Daredevil was Wilson Fisk. Yes. I really loved him in The Cell, mm-hmm. playing the serial killer in The Cell. Just, yeah, he's just got away with mm. villains. Yeah, this one, not so likable. No. Wow. no. <laughs> he's terrifying yeah. and completely justifies the mortal fear of Iris, the prostitute that has the evidence of the killing. And that action scene in the subway station where she's trying to get away from him and his partner and she waits hiding behind a pillar and then runs onto the train just as the doors are closing Mm. it's such a good action scene yes yeah it's hilarious though right like it's the kind of thing that we feel like we've seen a million times before like we get that a high angle shot from like a long distance and we're seeing the entire empty platform and we all know exactly what's going to happen and we know she's probably going to make it because that's what the film's plot necessitates and yet the way that it's shot and the way that it's edited it is heart pounding you fear Mm. for this woman and you think Mm. they could just shoot her dead on this subway train yeah I think it's pacing like it's just really well paced and like there's lots of breathing room Mm -hmm. in that scene as well does kind of make the film very long though yeah it takes a long time to get into the main plot of the murder i counted it's like 56 minutes into the movie we see the first murder and then it starts the ball rolling with the main plot but i guess 
do have to establish this world. They do spend time establishing this playback future of, of 1999. That and I think the film is very careful about making sure that we have enough time with Mace and Lenny to see the ups and downs in their relationship so that we have a better understanding of why Mace would stay with Lenny. Sure. Because I agree with you, Conrad. I think that one scene where we see the flashback establishes why they became friends in the first place and maybe when she started to love him. Mm-hmm. But he is such a sleazeball in <laughs> the contemporary time period like it doesn't make sense why she would continue to advocate for him so we need all of those scenes where she's kind of rescuing him and you can see little glimpses that he's not as bad as he maybe appeared to be on the surface but i don't disagree with you dad it's it does Mm. take its time (laughs) i had to watch it in two sittings because it was a long movie in 25 minutes Mm -hmm. and even the ending conrad that you mentioned there there are like two endings pretty much like it is quite a drawn out third act Yeah, it's not quite Lord of the Rings Return of the King, but, (laughs) you know, you think of the scale of it too. I mean, they fully realised a New Year's Eve party. I just assumed that they shot on New Year's Eve in Times Square at one point. Nope. Nope. They hired 10,000 extras and put on a show with Aphex Twin. Wow. It's incredible. They paid them $10 each to show up, and I think five were hospitalised with ecstasy overdoses. (laughs) I love that factoid. Oh, no. Yeah. It is an epic length. I think the detective plot is almost the least interesting, although it is more worked out than, say, you know, Blade Runner. I think one of the things Harrison Ford always complained about with Deckard is that he doesn't do an awful lot of detecting in that movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, there are clues and bits of evidence and red herrings and double dealing characters that are leading people down a false path. I mean, the basic plot is essentially the same as Blow Up or yes. Brian De Palma's Blow Out, mm, which is a, sure. a Ned do well character that's a bit of a huckster gets hold of evidence of a political assassination and doesn't really know what to do with it. I even noticed a parallel. There's a shot where Mace is cradling Lenny in her lap and the camera is looking up and you're seeing all this confetti around her. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same as the John Travolta Nancy Allen shot in Blow Up Mm -hmm. with the fireworks going off, but with a very different conclusion, a much more mainstream conclusion. So yeah, they are ostensibly similar. But as you say, this one does more in terms of setting up the characters and it does more in terms of creating a believable world. I mean, I believe this world much more than Johnny Mnemonic's world. Oh, God, yes. Well, I mean, the acting's better, uh, for one thing. (laughs) But there are a lot of similarities between Johnny and Mnemonic. Like, I do feel like Johnny does get saved by the girl at Mm -hmm. one point, which is very similar to this movie. They both came out the same year, which is kind of surprising. And they both have very a lot of similarities to The Matrix as well. I mean, you, you mentioned Joe with the whole cyberpunk William Gibson sort of aesthetic to everything. Mm-hmm. I do like that type of future where it, it is very diverse, but it's also very seedy. Yes. And everyone's just out to rip everyone off. <laughs> it seems like no one's just like doing a normal day job, just crime and corruption everywhere. I know, driving through the streets and there's teenage girls mugging a Santa Claus and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. cars on fire and riot police. And this is just a Wednesday for Lenny. He's just driving through it on his flip phone, making deals. This is everyday LA in 1999, supposedly. I mean, in 2020 and 2021 with the protests, there were lots of yep. cars on fire and like shops being trashed. It's not confounded. That actually happened. 
Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I think that's one of the reasons why I end up liking it because I feel like the movie has aged well in that regard. You know, the technology with the discs, the mini discs, is probably the most outdated component, <laughs> but the idea that we would want to continue reliving memories and we might have to put them into a kind of like hard drive version, I think still persists. And mm. Unlike something like Johnny Mnemonic, where, you know, we're, we're shoving appliances into our head with storage capacities that's, you know, the size of a thumbnail now. Yeah. A lot of the technology, <laughs> like the, the ideas and the principles of Strange Days, to me, are really relevant. And they're used in service of the larger political racial storyline. So it's less about trying to predict where we're headed in the future and more about like we're on the cusp of something that is going to radically change the world. Yeah, yeah. I, I do feel... I feel like that's Catherine Bigelow, though. I, I feel like she was on a clear trajectory to direct movies like Hit Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, where yes. she did want to say some very powerful things, mm-hmm. but she had genre films to deal with. So she would insert them into these genre films. I mean, this movie is written by James Cameron, though. So yes. I don't know how much of the original script was him and how much Catherine inserted. But yeah, I was also surprised. Like, James Cameron, wow. Okay. Yeah, he was busy. So he was working on True Lies and also prepping for Spider Man, which of course he didn't. Which he didn't do. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it was a pretty well worked out script treatment. I mean, 140 pages or something like that. So he'd pretty much worked out the plot and then Mm -hmm. it was developed with Catherine Bigelow and Jay Cox. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I definitely think Catherine Bigelow put her stamp on this. It feels very much of a piece with her later work, that's for sure. Yeah, it reminded me quite a lot of uh, Detroit that she um, directed fairly mm. recently. The whole sort of race wars and mm-hmm. police brutality, yeah. that sort of thing, very similar. Well, and by all indications, she was the one who was sort of responsible for souping up the role of Mace, which when people talk about this film now, I think more people lean onto your side, Conrad, where they're like, oh, Ray Fiennes is in this. Okay, that's a bit of an interesting role for him, given in his career trajectory. But the thing that people always walk away with is, holy shit, Angela Bassett. Like, she is the get (laughs) in this movie. Mm. Yeah, hot Mm -hmm. off of the Mm -hmm. Tina Turner biopic three years before. Mm -hmm. Angela Bassett. (sighs) Yeah, I don't really know her that well. Like, I know who she is and I knew who she was straight away, but I think I only know her from American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's amazing in that. She's really good in that too, yeah. Mm. (laughs) I need to watch more of her films. Yeah, definitely. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards! Okay, it's a Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite squid playback parts of the film in a number of Y2K-fearing categories. Best quote. Well, I'm going to take the obvious one because I, to me, it embodies everything about Mace's relationship with Lenny, so it has to be... This is your life, right here, right now. It's real time, you hear me, real time. Time to get real, not playback. Mm. Mm. Yeah, good enough for Fat Boy Slim. It was. (laughs) It's iconic. 
Um, yeah, with me it was Mace all the way as well, and it was one that I found particularly enjoyable. I laughed out loud, even though she's very angry when she says it, and it's when she's having an argument with Lenny because he's taking advantage of her, and mm-hmm. uh, she says to him, "Don't just be using the time when I'm talking, thinking about what you're going to say next." <laughs> <laughs> she's on to him. Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. on his bullshit immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, my, one of my favorite quotes <laughs> was from a mace again. It's when she uh, sees Delini because he's trying to like pay her off or something. Like you can get twenty five percent, and then she says, "You know, this might be a hard concept for you, but friends don't have to pay their friends." <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's mace all the way. It's, it's mace all the way. It is mace all the way. <laughs> Best hair or costume? So I will confess. Part of the reason that I love this movie is because I saw it at an impressionable age and I will fully cop to the fact that I am a very white individual who grew up in a middle-class suburban neighborhood. So (laughs) didn't have a lot of exposure to people of color. I went to a very, very white high school. So by the time I saw this, it was like kind of revelatory to see Mace with her braids and just the way that Catherine Bigelow shoots her her hair feels like a presence in the movie mm. and far be it from me i recognize now that white people often like to co-op black people's hair and aesthetics and it's uncomfortable but i will say that mace has always left an indelible impression on me because of her aesthetic yeah mm. yeah i i think her entire character just breaks a lot of tropes like it does it's not what you expect at all Mm, right she is such a commanding presence in the movie like to the point where she's driving the car you know she's kicking ass she's saving Mm -hmm. the day really yeah and angela bassett is jacked in this movie yeah yeah her arms could crush boulders (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yep I uh, also had Mace's hair, but I will go for my second favourite, which is just for comedy value. Juliette Lewis's choice of clothing for roller skating in a public park. Oh, boy. uh, Which consists of a a grey sweater with a plunging neckline and uh, her midriff exposed, pink leg warmers and a tiny, tiny, tiny black bikini bottom. Mm -hmm. And then she takes everything off and then washes her boobs in the sink. So... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> she owns and it. That's though. like our introduction to this character, right? It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most 90s moment. So, as I said, I did grow up in a very suburban middle class environment, but uh, I did sneak away in the mid to late 90s to go to a rave. And Ooh. so, the scenes in the club, Philo's Club, where people are body surfing while listening to bad music was very reminiscent <laughs> of the times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yes. such a trope wow. with like 90s like club scenes. It, it's always in some yes. concrete warehouse and there are dancers mm-hmm. in cages and uh, heavy metal <laughs> music. It. Everyone's a punk. Everyone's pierced up. Uh, it's, yeah, it's very 90s. It is. And speaking of the music, my nomination would be just deep forest, just just full mm-hmm. stop. Oh, yes. This e- ethnic electronica with the loads of controversy over them sampling vocalists all over the world without paying them or paying them a, an absolute pittance and then getting sued afterwards. So for me, this is very reminiscent of my youth in the 90s uh, with 
Enigma and oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Deep Forest mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Adiamus and Praise and yeah. Mm. <laughs> Favorite scene. I was lazy and just wrote any scene with Angela Bassett. In it. <laughs> <laughs> I will echo that. I I will say the slow motion climax where she's being beaten and then the crowd jumps in. It's it's hard to say it's a favorite because it's really triggering and I imagine it's very difficult for a lot of people. But when you know why they include this because of the Rodney King beatings, because they were filming during the OJ trial. And then, yeah, as you've said wow. multiple times, Dan, this seems so prescient. It feels like this is a scene that will just live on in infamy forever to me. Mm, yeah. Most cliche moment. I think for me, the silliest part is that in all of this future tech, people will always become addicted to it. So I don't mm. doubt that people would want to use it and use it in a variety of different ways. But yeah, uh, with you know Philo getting addicted to it and becoming paranoid and wanting to record everyone and it eventually kills him, sort of, in a way. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just thought, okay, you know, we don't get addicted to every technology, do we? Well, with your with your internet loss recently, I mean, <laughs> did you go through withdrawal and start rocking in a corner? Okay, I, you know what, I, I take back the question. <laughs> <laughs> My cliche is more of an action cliche than a sci-fi cliche, and that's the high fall death. Yeah. Yes. Which... Mm-hmm. Um, also known as the Disney villain death because if the Disney villain just falls away then you don't have to worry about the whole thing they're they're just gone they're just gone so yeah Batman 89 die hard sudden impact in the line of fire the hand that rocks the cradle onto a picket fence Robocop total recall see you at the party Richter yeah yeah high fall deaths (laughs) yeah best special effect so this is a tricky one because I think it's done nearly so seamlessly that you can barely tell. But that opening sequence that we talked about where, you know, we watched them run up to the roof and then fall between the buildings. I just think it's so dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that was my pick as well. And specifically the detail that the stuntman does jump across the gap between those two buildings live with no safety wire Mm, but there is an airbag in the street below which you are the camera points directly at when the the second character looks over the ledge but it is painted and airbrushed to look like concrete and dressed with garbage wow so that it looks like a street wow but there is an airbag down there that's amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, it's so frustrating because you're 100% right, Deb. We would just, you know, uh, we'll just take it out in post now. Yeah, yeah. But like yeah. that attention to detail, come on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's the real magic of movie making. Mm-hmm. That now they just shove a green bag down there and that would be Oh, it. yeah. Favorite yeah. sound effect. I have to say for sound effect... I didn't pick anything out. It was hard. Yeah. Me neither. Uh, I mean, it's very subtle, but the, again, going back to the playback, whenever it started, it had this very kind of stuttery, static sound, but it was very, very subtle. Mm. Uh, the only other thing I could pick out with sound was the gunshots sounded very boomy, uh, kind of not what mm. you expected, like almost like like they were distorting or something. But yeah, I mean, it's very subtle again. So nothing hugely stood out sound-wise. No, 
Uh, most funniest moment. So I didn't actually come up with anything for this because I I don't find the movie particularly funny. I think we we've mentioned that there's funny lines of dialogue, but I'm not sure that that translates into a scene. So I'm curious to hear what you two came up with. Yeah, I I mean I found th- there was dialogue that was funny that cracked me up, but it wasn't fun like hilarious. Apart from one scene no. where where Lenny and um, Mace are getting ready to leave and he's he's getting dressed or something and they're, they're talking about this whole murder and sort of the implications of everything and then Lenny just exclaims, Oh shit and then Mace replies, What's the matter? And then Lenny says, This tie doesn't go with blue. <laughs> it's just yeah. it was just completely like totally he's wrong. A fashionista. <laughs> that well, yeah. <laughs> He's got his silk shirts. All of his shirt and tie combinations have been hideous. Oh, oh they're fact, absolutely like, atrocious, yeah. yeah. In fact, there's something Max, the, the villain, comments on, and it's, it, isn't it a clue that he's colorblind and he can't mm-hmm. tell how bad yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. outfits are? That is one thing that was that's kind a of throwaway yeah. that actually made sense because all of the... Because it, it is kind of a trope where you have like flashbacks or like um, you know point-of-view shots where they just stick a filter over it. But it's not a filter. Mm-hmm. He's colorblind. That's why it looks like that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it gives. And it, there is a reason for it. He was pensioned out of the force because he took a piece of bullet to the brain. So uh, there is a reason for it. It's planted right at the beginning right, of the movie. Right. So yeah. In terms of a, as I say, a detective plot, it's actually pretty good. Mm, this movie. Mm. Says laying stuff. But out. it's subtle, yeah. right? It doesn't hit you over the head with like, and here's all the reasons why Max actually did it. Yeah, with flashbacks showing you the things Whoa. that you were supposed to have mm, noticed. Yeah. Right. And that's our Mooblies. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sandy King Carpenter, producer of movies like They Live, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's final verdict. Time should Catherine Bigelow's 1995's uh, Strange Days be liberated from the oubliette to play back in everyone's brains and be adored, or be shoved into a limo, set on fire, and plummet back into the oubliette, never to be seen again? Joe, you have presented <laughs> with us Strange Days. Was it a strange time for you? Or was it was a great time for you? I unabashedly love this movie. This has to be released from the oubliette so as many people as possible can finally watch it because this movie deserved better when it was released. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I would agree. I don't think I un- really sort of understood the gravity of this movie when I watched it. I think I was uh, my, like 19 or something when I watched it. I just didn't get it. Uh, also, not growing up in America. Well, yeah. Very safe was... New Zealand environment. Uh, yeah, d- I, d- I just didn't understand. And being more socially aware now of current events and what's going on in America, I, I guess specifically, like it, it, it's so relevant. Like, I can't believe how relevant this movie is uh, for being mm-hmm. like more than 20 years old. That's, that's incredible. Um, so, yeah. And performances, as much as Comrade you didn't like Rafe, I, I thought he was great. I thought Angela was great. <laughs> I thought um, Juliette Lewis was great. It's, it's yeah, it's just a really gritty, grimy, disgusting, seedy, futuristic 1999 that I, I always wanted to see. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. 
Well, I, I have to admit, this is not a film that connected with me when I saw it on Laserdisc the first time. Um, <laughs> it's not one that I've ever had the urge to revisit in any great frequency. It's not one that I love. It, it, it kind of leaves me cold, but... I do think it's an incredibly well-made movie and one that did not get a fair shake at the mm. time, possibly because it was way ahead of its time. And I mm. I do think it's one that feels a lot more relevant and a lot more impressive now, knowing that it's all analogue and real and actually happening. Mm. And yes, Angela Bassett <sighs> is amazing in this movie. Just, if nothing else, watch it just yeah. for her. Yeah, but yes. Yes. I, there's no way this is going back in. It's it's just too good a piece of filmmaking. Mm. So, yeah. Let's release it. <laughs> Go free. Joe, thank you so much for joining us and and recommending this movie for us to to talk about again. I'm sure people would like to hear more of your thoughts on movies. Where can they follow you? Yes. So as we mentioned off the top, I'm the co-host of Horror Queers, which releases a new episode every Wednesday. And if you want to reach the show, that's just at Horror Queers. And if you want to reach me specifically, I am at B Storm My Remote. And that's the letter B on both Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Yes, do check out all of Joe's stuff. And if you want to check out us and keep up to date with us, we are on all platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Reddit as uh, Movie Oubliette. And you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And you can also buy merchandise with our logo on it at Redbubble. There's t-shirts, mugs, hats, shower curtains, yes. clocks. I have a clock. It's very nice. Oh. So yeah, check us out at Redbubble. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And if you haven't already watched it, we do have our Halloween video essay on our YouTube channel with Melinda Mock from Retro Blasting. Uh, please check it out. Which Halloween movie did you enjoy or which one do you think works out of all of them? But uh, we, we have mm. a bit of a discussion of, of why they didn't work. Yes. Indeed. And if you want to support the show, then head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can vote on films for us to feature in our future episodes. And for $5, you get access to exclusive bonus minisodes and extended extra interviews with our special guests. And speaking of voting on future films for us to cover... Yes... That's what our patrons have been doing this time, Dan. They've given us a long list of movies for our next episode. Yeah, yes, we are doing a patron's choice uh, for our next episode. So you, the patrons, have the power. Mm. Yes, and we've got a wonderful selection of films here. Wicked Person gave us Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and Vampire Circus. Nick gave us Venom, a 1981 British horror thriller with Oliver Reed in it and a killer snake. Um, never heard of that one. Boss Salvage said Sleepwalkers, if we haven't uh, uh, overdosed on Stephen King so far. And Surge <laughs> of Cold Crash Pictures suggested Rift and The People Under the Stairs. Ozma suggested Powder from the 90s. Jerry Goldsmith score on that mm. one. Luis Avedra said Incubus, El Topo, Holy Mountain, or Phase 4. Intrigued by those. Mm. 
Eddie said The Devil's Reign from 1975 and The Final Countdown. Seth said Lake Mungo. And James said Biggles Adventures in Time <laughs> and Time Rider. Oh, I'm going to have to get Michael back for that one. I think we would, actually. I, I just cannot imagine doing Biggles without Michael French. Yes, yes, yes. All right, I guess I'll, I'll bring out the wheel. Oh, yes, here it comes. Oh, oh, heavy as always. Okay, let's spin <laughs> this sucker. Oh. Okay, okay, what's it going to be? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Okay. I don't know anything about this movie. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, a 1988 American comedy horror film directed by James Signorelli, starring Cassandra Peterson as an eccentric horror hostess Elvira, a character previously established in a television program, Elvira's Movie Macabre. And it mm. stars... Other than Cassandra, W. Morgan Shepard, Daniel Green, Jeff Conaway, Susan Kellerman, and Edie McClurg. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I know of Elvira as that host. Uh, she has her boobs out, right? Uh, <laughs> apart from apart from that, I don't think we we got that in, in New Zealand. Like, it was just not a thing. We It's very American. It is, yeah. No, it, it did not make it across the pond either. So I have never seen or uh, I'm not aware of Elvira in any way whatsoever. So yeah. this is going to be a whole thing. Yes, we're going to be an education. <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. So I look forward to that. Yeah. That should be fun. Yeah. It's a change yeah. of pace. <laughs> yes. Yes, it will be. <laughs> Thanks again, Joe, for coming back for another episode. Uh, listeners, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you'll be at. You could sell a goddamn rat's ass for a wedding ring.